All right, well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to our Sunday worship. My name is Thomas. I'm on our pastoral staff here. This is your first time. Glad you could join us today. Uh, looking forward to Easter and Good Friday. And um, you know, right now we're in a season that churches call Lent. And it's been awesome. There's been members of our church. We're all together praying and fasting together. And those of you who've been writing reflections and been participating in that, it's awesome. So just know if you're part of this church, there are people here praying for this church and lifting this up until we get to the Easter season. Um, also, just at our church, one thing we've been doing is a Bible reading plan where we try to encourage our church to read the Bible together. And right now it's March, and this is usually the time where New Year's resolutions end and we just kind of stop what we're doing. I'm sure for some of you here, uh, if you've been part of the Reading Bible Plan, it's kind of maybe it's been a while since you've been able to like really pick that up. Uh, I'd really encourage you, uh, don't give up, keep going, jump back on the train. If you want to catch up, awesome. But we just want to start where we're starting right now, which is in the book of Acts. Would highly encourage you to keep going because uh, it's awesome uh, to go through the scriptures together and just to make the Bible story our story. So I just want to encourage you there. And speaking of the Bible, uh, we are going through uh, the book of Genesis, the story of Genesis, the past few weeks, and next week's going to be the last week. We're going to end the story of Genesis, chapter 37 to 50, uh, but today's, uh, we have two more messages, um, and today's going to be an interesting part of the story that I'm not sure if a lot of us are familiar with, and as we read it, it might feel a little jarring sometimes if you're paying attention to it, and so uh, we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 38. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there, or if you have the program, it's right there as well. We are reading from the CSB. And our church here, we believe that when uh, we read Scripture, that our God, He is alive and speaking to us now. So can we all rise together as we read this passage, starting in verse 1, and we're going to go all the way down to verse 26. So Genesis 38. At that time, Judah left his brothers and settled near an Adulamite named Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a Canaanite named Shua. He took her as a wife and slept with her. She conceived and gave birth to a son, and he named him Ur. She conceived again, gave birth to a son, and named him Onan. She gave birth to another son and named him Shelah, and it was at Chezeb that she gave birth to him. In the Lord's sight, and the Lord put him to death for your brother. But Onan named for his brother. What he did was evil in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death also. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought he might die too, like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had finished mourning, he and his friend Hira, the Dulamite, went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers. Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's clothes, veiled her face, covered herself, and sat at the entrance to Naam, which is on the way to Timnah. For she saw that though Shelah had grown up, she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He went over to her and said, Come, let me sleep with you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me for sleeping with me? I will send you a young goat from my flock, he replied. But she said, Only if you leave something with me until you send it. What should I give you, he asked. She answered, Your signet ring, your cord, and the staff in your hand. So he gave them to her, to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. She got up and left and removed her veil and put her widow's clothes back on. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Dunamite in order to get back the items he left with the woman, he could not find her. He asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was beside the road at Nahum? There has been no cult, no cult prostitute here, they answered. So the Dunamite returned to Judah saying, I couldn't find her. And besides, the men of the place said, there has been no cult prostitute here. 
Judah replied, let her keep the items for herself. Otherwise, we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send this young goat, but you couldn't find her. But three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar has been acting like a prostitute, and now she is pregnant. Bring her out, Judah said, and let her be burned to death. As she was being brought out, she, was, she sent her father-in-law the message, I am pregnant by the man to whom these items belong. And she added, examine them, whose signet ring, cord, and staff are these? Judah recognized them and said, she is more in the right than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not know her intimately again. This is the reading of God's word. I told you it's a crazy story. Can we pray? And then let's ask the Lord's help today. Father, bless us. May your spirit come alive and stir in our hearts a word you have to say for this congregation here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. There's a Netflix TV show my wife and I recently watched that I think some of you might be familiar with, uh, Physical 100. Awesome show, if you don't know it. It's a reality show where they invite a hundred different competitors who are known for their physical attributes to come and they want to discover the perfect physique. That is the goal of the show. And the way they discover this is they set up challenges where the competitors compete against each other. Uh, But some of those challenges, they are team challenges. And the way the teams are formed is they will choose a leader and that leader will choose different contestants to be part of their team. And the way they choose different people, it depends upon what the challenge is. So for example, if they sense the challenge is moving something large, the team leader will choose the strongest people that they see. If they sense the challenge involves a lot of picking members, it was so triggering because it reminded me of, like, no, you're not going to be in my team. They're rejecting people. And it was really sad. And, uh, I, but I understood like, why the team leaders, they had to be like, kind of like, like that. They had to be very selective because they had something to accomplish. They're trying to accomplish something. They wanted to win the competition. They want to be the, the, the perfect physique that the show was searching for. Now, God in the Bible, he's trying to accomplish something. That's what the whole book of the Bible is about. God is trying to accomplish the kingdom of God coming into this world. But the question is, who is he going to choose to help him build his kingdom? You see, the story of Genesis, the way the whole story of the Bible begins, is a story of how God created the world to be good, but human beings, we messed up creation. That's what Genesis 1 to 11 is all about. Genesis 1 to 11 is all about the problem. I think it's on the screen up there, the problem of the world. But Genesis 12 to 36 tells us that there's a promise that God will not leave us into this broken world, but he promises to restore this world through the family of Abraham. And then Genesis 37 to 50, which is the, the passages that we've been going through, we see the story of Joseph as a picture of what God's redemption plan is going to look like. And this is kind of the beginning where it's going to spread through the rest of the Old Testament, where we're going to see that God, he's going to bring redemption into this world. He has a goal, and it's going to happen through something called the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a place where God's going to reign, his will is done, and there's going to be healing and restoration in this world. But again, that begs the question, how's God going to do this? What types of people will God invite to be a part of this? What types of people will he use to build this? And probably most specifically, uh, how can you be a part of this? How can you be a part of God's, God's kingdom where you can experience God's healing and restoration in your life? And Genesis 38, as surprising as it is, it's going to tell us. Genesis 38, it's a really weird story. 
Very strange. I mean, the part that probably stands out the most to a lot of us is there's a dad who sleeps with his daughter-in-law and gets her pregnant. So weird. And that's like just the, the part that stands out. There's all these weird parts here. Uh, and it's not just a weird story, but what makes the story even weirder is that the part of the Bible where it's actually located. This is part of a larger story. Uh, Genesis 37 to 50, we've been going through the series, and it's all about Joseph. Chapter 37, Joseph's in, in Egypt. 39, he's in Potiphar's house. 40, 41, he's in jail. 42, 44, he reunites with his brothers. 45 to 48, he's reconciled with his brothers. It's all about Joseph. But then all of a sudden, in between chapter 37, 39, is the story of Judah. Joseph has, is nowhere in the story. And yet, why did the Genesis author put Genesis 38, the story of Judah, in the middle of the Joseph story? A lot of people don't know how to make sense of this, and that's why if you ever go on church websites and you see sermon series that says the story of Joseph, they will all skip chapter 38. Because it, how does this fit into what God is telling, the authors are telling about Joseph? However, I would argue that the only way you could fully understand the story of Joseph is if you understand the story of Judah. The ending of Genesis will not make sense unless you understand what's going on in this weird story about Judah in Genesis chapter 38. And so through the story of Judah, what we're going to learn is we're going to see how God, how he's actually going to bring his plan of redemption, not just within this family, but to all the world. And we're going to look at this weird story and see a couple of themes that hopefully could answer that question of the types of people God invites to his kingdom, that he uses to build his kingdom. And we'll look at it by looking at three themes in the story. The first theme is the blindness. We just notice the blindness in the story. Secondly is the breakthrough. And lastly is the blessing. The blindness, the breakthrough, the blessing. First, let's talk about the blindness. So Judah He's somebody that uh, we might be familiar with the name in the Bible, but maybe not a lot of us have been really introduced to who he is. A little background about him is Judah, he is the fourth son of Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. Judah is the fourth one. His mother is Leah. And if you know anything about Leah, Jacob, uh, Judah's father, Jacob, does not love Leah. He was tricked into marrying her. And Judah, he lives with his father, Jacob, and his brothers. And another thing we know about Judah is he hates his half. Jacob loved Rachel. Did not like Leah, loved Rachel. And can you imagine if you're living in a household where you have your mother there, who you love, but your father hates her, but you have another mother who's in the household and you see your dad loving on her. That's going to create some weird vibes in the household. And not only that, Jacob, his father, loved Joseph, Rachel's son. So there's like tension that's already going on there. And not only that, but as we read in the early Joseph story, Joseph, he was kind of a narcissist. He embraced the idea that he was loved. And so that's why, I don't know if you guys know, but in chapter 37, the first story of the Joseph story, when the brothers drew Joseph into the pit, do you know who it was that suggested, hey, let's sell him off as a slave? It was Judah. Judah's the one who made that idea. In chapter 37, verse 26 to 27, it's on the screen, it says this. Judah said to his brothers, what do we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come on, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay a hand on him. Judah hated his brother. He was filled with hatred towards him. And then after they sold him off to slavery, that's how chapter 37 ends. And that happens right before the passage that we have today. Now in Genesis 38, we find out what happens to Judah after that whole situation. After Judah sells Joseph to slavery, uh, we see how Judah's life plays out, and it's pretty interesting. 
He makes some questionable choices. Let's notice a couple things going on in chapter 38. Notice that when we meet Judah in verse 1, he is no longer living with his father and brothers, but he moved out on his own. Look at verse 1, what it says. At that time, Judah left his brothers and settled near a Dulamite named Hera. Now, when you read that today, nothing pops out because we think, oh, yeah, I, people move out all the time from their family. When you're 18 or when you graduate college or whatever it is, you move away. Just know back then in the ancient Near East, this would be very weird. Nobody moved away from their family. Everybody lived together with their extended family, your grandmother, your grandfather, your cousins. You all lived together because you all owned the land together. The fact that Judah moved away, something strange is happening. And the reason why we could guess why Judah left his family is because why a lot of us want to leave our families. It was messed up. His family was broken. They sold out their brother to slavery. They lied to their dad that their brother is dead. And so Judah, in that situation, saw him, he was depressed, weeping over Joseph. And so Judah, in that situation, what is he going to do? He got to live in that dysfunctionality? Or he could do like a lot of people do, which is you got to get out. Got to move to the East Coast. Move to Asia. Get away. And that's what Judah was doing. He left the dysfunction of his household. That's the first thing we notice. Here's another thing that we can notice. Notice what happens to Judah's sons. And notice the theory Judah has about why that happened. In verses 6 to 10, we, six to 10, we see that Judah has three sons. He had, his oldest son is named Ur. And he marries a Canaanite woman named Tamar. But in their marriage, Ur happens to die. His first, son, his first uh, son is passed away. And so then he gives his second son, Onan, to marry Tamar. But then he dies as well. Now, one thing that might stick out to us is why on earth would you do that? Like, why would you give your son to someone to marry? And then when he dies, you give your second son. It's so foreign to us because today we don't live that way. But back then, the reason why Judah did that was because that was the kind of the culture of the land. It's called the leveret marriage, where pretty much what happens is if you give your son to marry somebody and your son happens to die, it's the father-in-law's responsibility to take care of the widow. And so what he's supposed to do is either take care of her, or if he has another son, offer him up for marriage for her as well. That was the law. That's what the responsibility of Judah was. And Judah, after he gave his second son Onan and he died, he has one more son. And he is supposed to offer that son as her husband. But he doesn't do it. You know why? Because he blamed Tamar for the death of his first two sons. He thought she was a walking dateline story. Something is wrong here. I gave you not just one son, two sons, and they both happened to die while marrying to this Canaanite woman. I am not going to give my third son to you. And that's why look what it says in verse 11. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up, for he thought he might die too, like his brothers. And notice a third thing. Notice that Judah... When he experiences personal tragedy in his life, notice how Judah responds to that. In verses 12 to 16, Judah's wife happens to die. And after Judah's wife dies, he goes on a business trip and he sees a prostitute. And he asks this prostitute, hey, let's sleep together. And they sleep together. And he doesn't know, though, this prostitute, it's actually Tamar in disguise. And he ends up getting her pregnant. Now, why is Judah living this way? And why is the text highlighting this part of Judah's life? And why on earth would I name my son Judah knowing that this person is like this? What is going on here? 
And here's, I think, what's happening. The text is trying to emphasize to us how blind Judah is to his sins. Judah is so unaware of everything going on in his life. Judah thinks when he moves to Canaan and marries a Canaanite, he thinks, I'm just starting a new life. I'm just moving on. Whereas we know from chapter 37, no, no, you're running away from your past. You're like Simba. You're running away. You're forgetting all the brokenness that's there. and You just want to move on. Judah thinks Tamar died because there's something wrong with her. Walking Dateline episode. Versus we know in verses 7 and 10, do you remember, what, do you see why they died? They were evil. God killed them. We don't know why they were evil, but we know something about them was really broken and messed up to the point where God had to kill them. And Judah has no idea. And also notice that when he sees this prostitute, he literally does not know it's his wife, his daughter-in-law Tamar. He doesn't see it because the story is trying to make a point. He is blind. He is not aware of what is going on. He does not understand his situation and what he is in. Why was Judah so blind to his sins? And this is where all the religious people will say it's because he doesn't know God. He needs to read his Bible more. He needs to pray so that he can know his sins. But here's a problem with that because do you know what family Judah comes from? His family is the one family that probably knows God better than anybody else in the world. They're the patriarchs. His father was Jacob who experienced God. He knows the story of God and he probably knows God better than anybody else around him. But here's the big problem. Judah might have known God. He did not understand himself. He did not know who he was. He detached himself from his past just moving on, don't think about it. He rather focused on Tamar, how she's messed up and she probably killed her, was responsible for her, her son, his son's death. And he couldn't see the fact that for, his, for, uh, for his sons that they were actually evil because if he actually admitted that they're evil, he might have to consider the question, was I a bad father? Was I a bad dad? See, Judah, he was blind to his sins this way because he didn't understand and see himself. The, the psychologist calls this uh, the false self, where your ego, it's so fragile, it's too fragile, that it's too painful to face the reality of how broken and how messed up you really are. And that's what we see happening with Judah. In a similar way, many of us here, you grew up in the church, you read, you read the Bible, you know who God is in the general sense, and yet we make such stupid choices, do we not? We do things that we know is not right, or we don't even understand why we do certain things. And the reason why is because we, don't, we are so blind to our sins, because we are blind to who we are. We don't know ourselves. And the reason why we're so blind to ourselves is because our ego is so fragile that it's too hard to admit what's really broken about us. And so what do we do? We erect a barrier. We protect ourselves. We defend ourselves. It's called pride. We are prideful people. When my wife and I first got married, the main problem of our marriage, it was not our fights, but it was the way we tried to resolve our fights. That was the problem. Let me give you an example of how my wife and I would fight. Uh, we'd be in the car, we'd be at home, and someone would do something to get the other person upset. Usually I'm the one who gets her upset. So she would be upset, and when we're upset with each other, we just stop talking. That we ignore each other, and it's kind of awkward. We both know something's weird. And then at one point in the evening, one of us would text the other person, ready to talk? 
I'm like, okay, let's go. We go to the living room, and then when we come together, my wife will say something like, you know, the reason why I'm, I'm kind of acting weird and I'm upset is because you did this, this, this to me, and that really bothered me. And the way I reply is, well, the reason I did that, that, and that is because you did this, this, this. And when, you know, that's, and we go back and forth, back and forth, and that's how our fight goes. And, you know, looking back, all my wife wants in those moments is for me just to say sorry. That's all she wants. She wants to share what's ha- what I did, and all she would want is for me to own it and say, I'm sorry I did that. But I don't. I don't do that. It's so hard. I have to explain to her my intentions. Oh, I didn't mean to do that. It was a bad day. You know, the reason why I did that, I always have to respond that way. Why? Because my ego is too fragile. I can't handle the idea that there's something really wrong with me. I have to justify what's actually taking place so that she wouldn't view me a certain way. And I think a lot of us, were like that too, right? Whenever someone points out something about you, are you quick to say I'm going through? Or I have kids. Like we, we deflect like crazy because it's too hard for us to accept the fact that who we really are, there's something very broken that's there. Pastor Tim Keller, he says it like this, quote, the ego, it often hurts. That is because it has something incredibly wrong with it. It is always making us think about how we look and how we are treated. It is very hard to get through a whole day without feeling snubbed or ignored or feeling stupid or getting down ourselves. That's because there is something wrong with my ego, and that's why we protect ourselves. We don't see ourselves when we protect ourselves. We don't understand how broken you are. If you keep living your life that way, it is so hard for you to take criticisms. It is so hard for you to take correction because you're far too sensitive to see your real self. You know, these days I tell people all the time, I truly believe there are two stories that everybody, the rest of your life, you need to grow continually familiar with over and over again. Here are the two stories you have to be familiar with. Number one is the story of the Bible. Grow, grow, grow in the story of the Bible and understanding it. And secondly, grow, grow, grow in the story of your life. Do you understand both? Some of you, you understand the story of your life. You know your Enneagram. You know your personality type. But you don't know what the story of the Bible is. And so what happens is you are very aware of your trauma. You're very aware of your deficiencies, your shortcomings, your weaknesses. And you have no idea what to do about it. You have no idea how to get healing about it. You're very self-aware, but you have no idea how to move forward. The story of the Bible talks about, that's why it's all about redemption and how we deal with our sins. And that's a few of us that are here, but my suspicion is in Orange County, amongst a predominantly Asian-American congregation, a lot of you, you know the story of the Bible because you went to church your whole life, but you are so unaware of the story of your life. You have no idea how your past affects you because you're moving on college, you just broke away from your family. You have no idea what your triggers are. You don't know why you get so upset about certain things. You think it's them. You have no idea how fragile your ego is, how sensitive you really are, because you don't know the real you who God needs to redeem. You have no clue. That's why I always joke with people. Some people, you don't need a more Bible study to make you grow as a Christian. You don't need Bible study. You need therapy. Like you need to know who you are because you have no idea how the story of God relates to you because you don't know you. 
That's why John Calvin, the 16th century reformer, he says that in his institutes, his majestic book, the opening line is that every Christian needs to do two things, know God and know thyself. And if you only know God here, but your knowledge of self is down here, it doesn't be this weird gap where you have no idea how to really walk with God. And so for all of us here, this is, our, this is what, what makes us blind. We either don't know what to do with our sins, or man, we don't even know our sins because we don't know ourselves. And we end up just like Judah. So what do we do? How do we change? How do we recognize who we are, our sins? And this is where the story tells us we desperately need God's initiating grace. We need his grace to enter into our lives. And that leads to the breakthrough. How did Judah experience a breakthrough where he was no longer blind to what he was doing and his situation? And the answer is, it's through Tamar, his daughter-in-law. Tamar, just to focus on her a little bit, she was a Canaanite woman, and she married Judah's sons, Ur and Onan, probably when she was about 13 years old. Because back then, that's when he got married, as a teenager. So just know, when you think of Tamar, she's not this adult, older woman. She is a teenager in this story the whole time. And not only is she a teenager, but she is a two-time widow. She's been a widow twice. Both her husbands died. And if you're a widow... In this time, you are the most socially and economically vulnerable person in society. Today, you don't need a spouse and kids to make it in the world. I mean, some of you would be nice to be married and nice to have kids. You might think that. But if you want to survive in society, you don't need to be married today. You know what you need today? You need an education. Because if, if you don't know how to read, if you're illiterate, really hard to survive in today's world, right? In the ancient world, you don't need an education. It was not a free jo- open market world. What you needed to survive back then was a family. You needed a spouse. You needed a kids. That's why if you had no kids, you die. You're left destitute. That's your finances. She was a widow, so nobody wants to marry a widow. So Tamar, her situation was she is going to be destitute unless something happens, unless someone takes care of her, and it's supposed to be Judah, her father-in-law. He has the responsibility to care for her, and yet he refuses. Why? Because he hates her. Dateline. That's why when he sees her later, he goes, burn her. Burning a person who's a prostitute, that is really weird. That's not like, oh, that's how all the stories in the Bible are like. No, not at all. That's a weird punishment. It's torture. Because Judah hated Tamar. And so he purposely neglected the one thing the Bible constantly talks about, which is to care for the vulnerable, to care for the weak. And so what does Tamar do? When she figures out, oh my gosh, my father-in-law, he's never going to take care of me. He's not going to fulfill his responsibility. She takes it upon herself to do something. She disguises herself as a prostitute. She gets Judah, her father-in-law, to sleep with her. She gets pregnant. And now she got that bag. Now she got it. Judah must take care of her. Now, I know a lot of us, we look at Tamar and we look down at her going, man, this Jezebel woman, how could she do this? This is what happened and so forth. And while people, conservatives, think that way about her, just know the Bible, while it never condones what Tamar did, it never condemns her. You know why? Because Tamar, she was seeking after justice. She was seeking after something that only one person could give her in the world, which was what Judah could give her, that was a life. A life that she could actually live. And so what happens, though, is that after Judah sleeps with Tamar, which he thought was a prostitute, uh, it's funny, you get an inside peek where Judah, he sends his friend to look for her, the prostitute to pay, but he couldn't find her. And it's really interesting is you actually learn through that search, 
uh, what gets Judah his his uh, his motives, like what his motives are, like what gets him ticking. And the, what we find out in verse twenty three is Judah he cares a lot about his reputation. Look at it. Judah replied, let her keep the items for herself, otherwise we'll become a laughingstock. He did not want people to know that he slept with a prostitute. Because, hey man, just, let's just keep it quiet, just keep it on the DL, let's not make a big deal out of this, because he really cared about his public persona, his public, uh, the way the public viewed him. But then we hear, three months later, Judah, he heard Tamar got pregnant, he said, how dare she get pregnant? And he demands, let's bring her out so that we can burn her. And so what happens is, imagine the scene. You have a bunch of people going to this teenager's house. They go, hey, we heard she's pregnant. Get her out here. Judah's there going, dude, I can't believe my daughter-in-law did this. And he's been waiting for this moment because, again, this person is responsible for his son's deaths. And they bring her out. And then look what happens in verse 25. As she was being brought out, she sent her father-in-law this message. I am pregnant by the man whose who's, uh, these items belong. And she added, examine them, whose signet ring, cord, and staff are these? And Judah recognized them. The ring, cord, and staff, that's the equivalent of like a driver's license today. Whose driver's license is this? And it's Judah's. Could you imagine Judah's humiliation? The one thing that he wanted to preserve, his reputation, being called out in that moment. And yet, this is the only way Judah recognized what was going on. Years ago, I had a friend back in college he wanted to be a K-pop star. And he was like serious. Like he's like, I'm gonna, I'm like majoring in like international studies because I'm gonna move to Korea. And he would post songs on social media, like different like, you know, tracks just to like get his name out there. And the problem was like, he was not good. Like totally not good. And we try to tell him like nice ways, like, hey man, you know, there's other jobs out there just for security you could have, just to be careful and so forth. But he was like blind to his sin. Like he did not see it. He's like, I'm just going to go, dude. And so my friend, he actually moved to Korea and he would tell us like he's auditioning for different like record labels, like legit record labels. And he actually stayed in Korea. He never came back and he lived there. And we, had to, we didn't hear from him for a long time. It was sort of like, oh, cool, man. And we just heard, like, you know, hey, he's auditioning and so forth. And I remember us thinking, like, man, this guy, he's, like, doing it. He's hustling. He's getting connections. And he's getting networked. And after 15 years of hard work and auditions, we found out that my friend, he is still in Korea. He is still hustling. And he is now working as an accountant. And the reason why he's working as an accountant is we found out that when he would, uh, go to different record labels, man, they would like jack him. They would tell, was he said, dude, I auditioned for this group of this producers and they told me straight up, you're too ugly to be a K-pop star. And he was like, that was it. That's what he was done. You could become a better singer. Uh, what do you do with this? <laughs> you know, you, it's like hard to do something with that. And so what happened was in that moment, it was so painful, he just dropped it. And I can't help but think, man, that's the only way he would listen. He needed to get humbled to realize how delusional he was. This is what happened to Judah. Judah was so blind to himself, to his sins. But God used Tamar as the only way for him to recognize what's going on. In fact, there's a Hebrew word. It's called uh, nakar. And this word, Hebrew word nakar, it means to recognize. And you see it actually all over what happens in verse, uh, in verse 25 to 26. In the passage, when you look at it, if you go to the next slide, you'll see that it says Tamar added, she examined, the words actually in the car, recognized them. Who's signet ring court in Saphrodes? And Judah recognized them. It's a text 
the author's way of telling us Judah's eyes are open for the first time in this moment. And you know what's really interesting is we know Judah like, recognizes because uh, in verse 26, look what it says. She is more right than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. Judah has no excuse. He doesn't go, well, you know, my wife just died. I was having a bad day. That's why I slept with the prostitute. He doesn't go, dude, I didn't know you were my daughter-in-law. He has no excuse. He just owns it. Uh, Tamar, Tamar, who was a better person than I am, who I thought was wicked, she is far more righteous than me. In other words, Judah got humbled. He got humbled bad. And that was the only way that he recognized himself. And in a similar way, that's what needs to happen to us. We are so blind to ourselves. We are so blind to our sins. And I could tell you all you want. This is, your, this is how you're a sinner. This is how you're a sinner. Nobody will pay attention. The only way something will break through is you got to get humbled. You got to get humbled. And that's so hard. Because to be humbled is so painful. Because when you are humbled and you realize, oh my gosh, it's me. That is really hard for the ego to absorb. Personally, when I look back at my life, I realize, like, man, I have had painful moments that I had to do a lot of self-awareness. And those are really painful. But I also think, like, those are the biggest breakthroughs for me to realize, like, how messed up I was and how I needed to change. Like, again, marriage, we used to always fight. We go back and forth, back and forth. And clearly, I thought for the first two years of marriage, my wife needs to see a therapist. Like, man, she has issues. She just needs to grow. And it took a lot of conversations and therapy together where I realized, oh, my gosh, I am so selfish. Like, I am way more selfish than I ever imagined. And I only discovered it through the brokenness of my marriage. Dude, kids, man, I still think that the problem is my kids. Like, those kids, like, they are crazy. They're spoiled. I just make criticism about them. They were just like this. Life would be better. Man, but through pain with my children and my mistakes, I realized, wow, I have a lot of character issues. Like, man, I, something about I need to be a better dad because, dude, they're just kids. Or here's a one that's been more sensitive to me these days, uh, my career as a pastor. I need to be able to be a better leader, to strategize. I need to like, be a better counselor. I need to, in other words, grow my skill level. That's what I kind of feel like sometimes. But these days what I'm realizing is through painful moments, is like, you know, it's not my skill level that needs to grow. I think my maturity level needs to grow. I'm not sure if my maturity level is matching what I'm saying up here sometimes. And it's painful to realize that. But as painful as those moments are, one thing that gets me kind of thinking is how life would be so much more painful if I never went through those moments. Like I imagine if my, if my marriage was all like, you know, we never fought. My wife never pushed back. She just kind of held everything in. Man, I'd be so much more selfish today. Way more selfish. It took those moments to really wake me up. Otherwise, man, I'd be so much worse. And when I look at that, I realize that, you know, when you're going down a certain path and you're just kind of going down that way, the worst thing God could do to you is just let you go. Just keep going, kid. No intervention, no breakthrough. Just keep going. That's the worst thing God could ever do. Let me give you an example. When you think of somebody, a husband or wife, and they're caught having an affair, and let's say when they get an affair, you see them lose their family, they lose their kids, they lose their reputation. Don't a lot of us look at that going, dude, that's God's wrath being poured upon them for what they've done. That's how we naturally think. However, I would actually counter that going, that's not God's wrath, that's God's mercy. 
God's wrath would be to let that person keep having that affair, keep living that double life, keep warping your heart in the way that you are going. That's God's wrath. But God's mercy is awakening him to what he is doing, awakening her to what she's doing. And now they have a choice of what are you going to do now? How are you supposed to change? And I say that because I know a lot of you here, you are going through some dark stuff right now. Like there's painful moments that you're experiencing and it feels like God is punishing you. God's wrath is on your life for whatever sins you did in high school or the choices you made in college. But maybe, maybe consider that God, he's actually being in an interest moment to get you to recognize something you would have never dared to pay attention to unless you're in this season right now. Some of you, you're disoriented and you're suffering because you don't know what you're going to do with your life. Your purpose is gone, your career, it's really weird. The layoffs is happening and you think, man, is God punishing me because it's so long? But maybe God wants you to reconsider for the very first time, why are you doing your career? You are doing it for your own self maybe or you're doing it for different motivations, but maybe like to re-examine what is the purpose of your career? And this is the first time, the only time you're paying attention. Or maybe your marriage, it's broken or it's a dark season and you think, again, God's punishing you. But maybe it's not your spouse. Maybe God's trying to wake you up to something that not just your wife, not just your husband, but everyone around you has been telling you your whole life. And this is the first time that God has your attention. Or some of you, maybe you're experiencing loss and suffering that's just too hard to describe. And again, it feels like God's punishing you. But maybe God's not punishing you in those moments. He's actually calling out to you. You're weeping on your beds, but why don't you come to me? Because it's been a long time since you've done that. See, this is the way we break through the blindness. You have to get humbled. There's no way around it. You have to get humbled. But here's where you have a choice. You can choose how you get humbled. No way around getting humbled. That's the only way to the path towards being self-aware, knowing your sins. But how you get humbled, that's up to you. And there's two choices you have. Here's the first choice. You could get humbled through either, on the screen, humiliation, or you could get humbled through humility. It's up to you. Some of you, you're going to get humbled if God is gracious to you through humiliation. You're coasting, you're cool, you're blind to whatever decisions you're making. Everyone sees it but you, but you're like, no, man, I'm good. My marriage is good. My character's good. I'm all good. And something's going to happen if God is gracious to you where it's going to wake you up. Something dramatic, maybe. This is like where those retreat moments take place or a dark suffering takes place. This deep moment of pain and loss. And that might happen to a couple of times in your life at most, but some of you guarantee you will have that moment in your life and it feels like punishment. It feels like God is doing something to jack you, but in reality, it could be God is actually being so merciful to you because now he has your attention. Now he's having you wake up. And I know when I say that, we're all freaked out now. I hear that all the time. Like, dude, I don't want God to jack me. Like, I just feel like it's coming because my life is good. That's not, it's not like, it's like that's the only way you have to be humbled. It can be humiliation or on a regular basis, daily rhythms, you humble yourself. You humble yourself. Because you listen to God. You pay attention to what he's trying to say. What does this look like? It's really simple. It's things like, I am curious what people think about me. Oh, I have, I have a community group that I want to ask, what, what do you think about me or my friends? What do you think about me or my spouse? What's your impression of me? Oh, you're not in a community group? You don't have anyone who talks like that? That's being humble. I need people in my life. 
or it's asking questions. A lot of us, as you get older, our questions cease. We tend to make a lot of assertions. This is how the world works. But no, it's staying curious, asking questions your whole life. Or even normal rhythms of grace like prayer. That's a humbling moment to know that I need to pray. I don't have to pray. I need to pray. Like I catch myself when I'm listening to a sermon going like, who's this guy preaching to me? What does he know? Man, I got better. If he doesn't say anything important, I'm going to just go on my phone. Like I have that posture. Sometimes I'm just tempted just to go walk the hallways because I'm just like, man, why am I here? Because you just, you know, what's this guy have to say? But I realize like listening to a sermon, it's like a humble thing. Like, hey, I need to hear the Bible being taught. That's just a moment of humility. Humble yourself. Or if God is gracious, there might be humiliation that comes. And not because God's punishing you. He wants to awaken you in a way so you could see the blindness of your soul. So that leads to the last point, which is the blessing. So Judah, right now, he lived most of his young adult life making stupid choices. He gets jacked. What can we possibly learn from him? Like, why is his story in the Bible? And when we look at his story, we have to conclude that even though Judah... He's not the most righteous person, but there is one thing he does. He repents. Judah got humbled, and rather than just boasting his pride, we see he does something that a lot of us have a hard time doing. He genuinely repents. He's not just sad. He's not just, oh, I'm a sinner, but he changes. Look at verse 26 with me one more time. He says, she is more right than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And look what he does. And he did not know her intimately again. He is not going to mistreat Tamar again. He is not going to take advantage of her. He is going to treat her with respect. This is totally contrary to the way Judah would have treated her before this. And what's funny is when you read the rest of Genesis and the Joseph story, you see actually Judah pop up all the time and you can't help but notice how he's changed. The next time we see Judah, it's in chapter 43 of Genesis. And when we see him, He's no longer in the land of Canaan. He is back living with his father and his brothers. He went back to his past, his dysfunctional family. It's all good. I'm just going to go back. And what's interesting is when the famine hits the land and Jacob, he's scared to send his son Benjamin to go to Egypt because that's his, one of his favorite kids because his mother is Rachel. And again, Judah, he hates Rachel. He hates Joseph. And Benjamin's the other son of Rachel. He should have every right to hate Benjamin. And yet, who's the one who vows, I will protect Benjamin? Genesis 43, verse 8 to 9, And Judah said to his father Israel, Send the boy to me. I will be responsible for him. And when Joseph comes and pretends to take away Benjamin, who's the one who offers his life in, in substitution for Benjamin? Verse Chapter 44, verse 18 and 33, it says, But Judah approached them and said, Please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. Let him go back with his brothers. You can't help but look at this going, Wow, Judah... He changed. Not because he's more righteous, but he realized his unrighteousness. Not because he's a great guy, he realized how great of a guy he was not. And this explains now, back to the beginning, how to make sense of the Joseph story. Because at the, the way the Joseph story ends in chapter 49, Jacob, he, they're all in Egypt, he's old now, he gathers all 12 of his sons, and he gives a, a blessing to them. He wants to bless each one of them before he dies. And this is a big deal. It's not like your Asian parent going, I bless you. Like, this is like a real big deal because it's like knives out when the father is passing on his inheritance. That's what's going on here. And what's happening is because, remember, Jacob, he was given the promise of the covenant, of the kingdom, for God's redemption to 
go forward. This started with Abraham, the promise, the kingdom. Uh, Abraham was the first person who God came to. It's on the screen up there. And then remember, Abraham, he had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Who does, and the promise goes to only one person. Who? Isaac. Isaac has also two sons, Jacob and Esau. Who does the promise go to? Jacob. Now we get into a tricky part. Jacob, he has 12 sons. You would think the promise goes to Joseph. Goes to Judah. Why? What in the world? Isn't this Joseph's story? Wasn't he the man? Was he like a, even though he was you know, bad beginnings, but he is an awesome guy later. Like what, what happened? But look what it says in Genesis 49, the way Genesis near the end. Verses eight to 10, it says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the necks of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. Judah is a young lion until he who's right it is to come. And when you read through the Bible, the tribe of Judah, of all the tribes, they are the biggest. The lion of the kings, including David, comes from the line of Judah. And even the Messiah, Jesus himself, he is known as the lion of Judah. He's from the tribe of Judah. Why? Why does the kingdom pass down to Judah? The reason why is because this is the types of people who God's going to build his kingdom through. Not through the righteous, but those who admit and repent of their unrighteousness. Not those who think they are great, but those who recognize how not great they are. And that's why when the Messiah actually comes and Jesus actually builds the kingdom, who does he reach out to? Mark chapter 2 verse 17. It is, it is, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Because that's who Jesus died for. That's who Jesus gives life to. That's who Jesus is going to raise up. Those who admit that they need a savior. Back to physical 100. You know, I, I like that show. But you know who my, I, there's, a, there's a competitor who I really liked. If you watch the show, there's this person, this female wrestler. I don't know, what, I don't know how to pronounce her name. She's awesome. Like she, she like led her team and she was like, you know, hardcore. But what made her so hardcore is, you know, her team was filled with the people who nobody wanted. Nobody wanted the people on her team. Her group was filled with like the, the small people. They were filled with like women. So sexist, right? Like nobody wanted the women in that group competition. It was filled with like people who were jerks on the show. Like they, nobody wanted to pick them. So they were all on her team and she had to lead the way. You know what happened? Why I love her? Dude, she just like rallied them. She's like, let's do it. Let's go. She led them through all the challenges. And when they like won a competition, glorious. It was like awesome. And I don't remember anybody else on that team. I just remember her. Like she led the way. She is awesome. And everybody saw it because all, all of them have social media followings, but her like social media following just blew through the roof. She is amazing. And that looks a lot like Jesus' kingdom. Jesus is not looking for you who have your life together, whose marriages look like this godly marriage, who's sexually pure and you stay pure your whole life going, oh, and now you can join my kingdom. But the gospel tells us Jesus is looking for those who are willing to admit you don't have your life together. Your marriage is way more broken than you had hoped for. You're way more sexually broken than you're willing to admit. And Jesus says, I came to die for you. You're part of the team. I want you in the kingdom. I want you to come because I'm going to give you life and going to call you to live a new life as you follow me. I'm going to lead you through the rest of the challenges in your life. And when you reach the end, 
All will see all glory to Christ. All glory to him. And so to conclude, here at our church, we don't want to just learn or be convicted, but we always want to practice, well, how do I live this out? And if I could exhort our church in two ways. For those of you who are exploring Christianity, visiting church, not really sure, like, ah, this Christian stuff, uh, a lot of people who I know when they reject Christianity, I hear this a lot. Uh, You Christians, it sounds great, but you Christians aren't that great. Like, I, I know Muslim people, atheists, who are way better people than any of you. And whenever people say that, I go, dude, you're right. There's probably a bunch of people who are way better than us as Christians. But the Christian gospel says that we are not saved because we are better people. We're saved because we admit we're not. And so I invite anyone who's exploring the faith, the practice is not to try to be a better person to be a Christian, but to seek after what this grace of God means in your life, to recognize your brokenness, and see what Jesus has to say to you wherever you are at. Now, for everyone else here, if you're a member of our church, or if you call yourself a Christian, you're part of the kingdom, uh, let me give you one challenge, one practice that we could do right now. Do you guys know what the name Judah means? Like the name Judah, what it literally means? The only reason why I know is because, again, I named my son Judah, so I had to look it up. It means praise. Judah means praise, which is such an appropriate name because who would praise God more than a person like Judah? Someone who knows they've been forgiven much and in response, they are just praising God. The person who's forgiven most, that's what's going to happen. And that's why when Jesus comes back, how do Revelation paints people are just praising the Lion of Judah? We know what he's done for us. Now let me challenge our church. Our church... We are great at many things. We're down to serve. We're kind. Man, you guys are the best sermon note takers like I see. I'm like, dude, you guys, it's awesome. Like it it flatters me. Like you guys like pay attention. But one thing we could really grow in our praise, our singing. For us, it's too often, I think, for us, it's no problem. You know, just we don't have to sing, we just come late, we just cross our arms. We just watch Eric Chung leading praise, and we're just like, mm, that's cool. And sometimes we turn around like, who's singing? Who's singing here? And I can't help but think it's not because we don't know how to sing. It's not because we're having a bad day. I feel like a lot of us, we forget how much we've been forgiven. And so if I could just encourage, for those of you, if there is a conviction in your heart, you go, yeah, I have been forgiven for much. I am part of this kingdom. No shame. Let this be this one space. We'll darken the lights. It's all good. Praise him. Praise the Lion of Judah. Those of you who call yourself, you are part of that Lion of Judah, would you respond by praising our God? And so as I invite our praise team up, can I invite us to take a moment to pray first, allowing space for the Spirit to move in our hearts right now? I'm not sure exactly which part might stand out to you in the story of Judah. Maybe for some of you, yeah, your life is kind of off these days. And you, you're going to church and you read the Bible, but it could be, yeah, you're just not aware of, like, of who you are and the pride that's kind of covering that and you just need something to break through that. Maybe for some of us, there's a specific thing we're doing that we're just not paying attention to, but we need to. Maybe we take a moment to pay attention to that. Or for others, maybe God, he's putting a tamar in your life. Like, man, you're going through something. And we are wondering if God's punishing us or why this is happening. But maybe it's God in his mercy He's trying to get us to recognize something that we have not been recognizing. 
Or for others, maybe it's, hey, why am I not singing? Why does the gospel not sound beautiful? Maybe we need to remember who Jesus is, the Lion of Judah, and what he's done on our behalf. So 